Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 72. We're in the USA of the Design Exec Club uh, Town Hall Series. Today, we're going to be talking about how design, innovation and a strong economy, how they work together. I'm joined by some very smart minds here. We've even got one person who's in hotel isolation. Hi, Julie. Hello, Mark. Good now, Julie, which part of the world are you in hotel isolation? I'm in isolation in Hong Kong because I just came from the United States, which is one of the reddest countries, if you look on the map in the New York Times of uh, COVID infection. So when I went to the US, I was coming back to Hong Kong with only one week of quarantine. But while I was there, the US rolled out a really strong uh, COVID, um, uh, not a response, but a COVID um, enactment. And so now I'm back with three weeks of hotel quarantine. Yeah, there's this really interesting thing I'm, I'm, I'm seeing us coming up with, which is we are consciously having to go deal with what is an acceptable mortality rate or death rate per billion dollars of economic activity. You know, Australia's example is we've, we've just gone through a thousand deaths from COVID and we're now considering well, if we lock the economy down, we do so many billions of dollars of economic damage. That in the next thousand deaths, how much, how many billions of dollars of economic prosperity would take place in that those thousand deaths? And then you put that next to the road toll, and every year we have around about a thousand people in Australia who die on the roads, and we don't stop the economy mm-hmm. because of the roads. And so. It's very interesting seeing people making a a hard evaluation, but we have these things where we talk about what happens when this factor impacts this amount of economic performance. I don't want to dig into that today, but what I want to dig into is how does design actually shift the amount of economic performance that a city has? Rick, you're probably um, in the roles that you've had at the Centre of Architecture and also at NYC, some of those conversations about the economic impacts of design would have come up from time to time. Have you got any leadership you can show us? I think one of the uh, best known recent, relatively recent projects in New York was the renovation of Times Square that was undertaken by the New York City Department of Transportation and and my agency, DDC. Uh, Jeanette Sadekhan, who is Mayor Bloomberg's uh, commissioner for the Department of Transportation at the um, uh, ribbon cutting for the Snowheader renovation, Uh, didn't talk about the aesthetics or the amenities or the added functionality or even the improvements of the uh, infrastructure below and above grade. She talked about the economics of it and how the uh, retail had changed since the improvements had started and the value of the property around Times Square, not just because of the displacement of the pornographic shops on 42nd Street, not just because of the changed perception that it was tourist friendly, but just because of the numbers of people which have now rebounded, you know, uh, with uh, different perspectives of the pandemic, uh, more than doubling the daily visitorship uh, uh, since a year ago, uh, not quite what it was before the pandemic, but it's getting back there. And that's just one example. Uh, You could look at other more uh, community-based projects, the public plaza on 175th Street, that created a uh, place for having a permanent green market that wasn't there before uh, a street closing took place between uh, Broadway and Fort Wadsworth Avenue. Real economic gain, measurable economic gain uh, at both levels of the economic spectrum. And, and what's interesting there is both are examples of something that's been solved, you know, by making a design intervention that they've been able to solve something and unlock some economic value that otherwise wasn't being able to tap, be tapped in there. And I think it's interesting that having the insight that you could unlock some latent economic activity in Times Square by getting rid of the pawn shops and substituting them for a Cartier real watch shop rather than a Cartier pawn watch shop is a very interesting thing. You're at the top of the cycle or the bottom of the cycle, tourists are still after a watch. I don't know what it is about tourists. They love buying watches. When you travel somewhere, you buy a watch. But... They're they're fascinating examples of intervening and accelerating economic outcomes. Dan, you would have seen over the the time that you've been in the design industry, people have come with a very blunt instruction. We 
we want to go and improve the economic outcomes for either this product range, this brand, this introduction of a, of a new type of technology. How do people express to you the type of economic performance that they want? Well, I don't usually get that as a initial description of projects or goals, surprisingly, mm -hmm. because that is the ultimate goal. Um, but it often is less discussed. What I do notice, which is interesting, is that the ability to shop, for instance, online is very measurable. Mm -hmm. You know, like Amazon is a science, eBay is a science. And I mentioned this before, but a lot of people don't realize how much work research and development into usability, design and usability has gone into computer interfaces in the over the last 40 years. Hmm. We'll just think they're good at computers. Uh, the reason there has been so much work put into it is to make people think they're good at computers. So when you use a site like Amazon or eBay or any, so any online shopping site, um, the goal is to make it easy to buy. And that it doesn't mean just no way to click, but also to give confidence in that purchase. Now, Rick was talking about physical spaces and that's the same, I, I guess the reason I'm talking digital is because it's so easy to measure digi digital. You know, you know what, where people are clicking, you know, whether they're visiting and shopping, you don't quite have that same sort of data flow with physical stores, uh, but it's the same principle. How do you make it easy to shop? How do you make it inviting? How do you give people confidence that they should be spending money? Even how do you give people confidence that, that they should be visiting New York City? And I think it was somewhere, I, I'm, I'm struggling on the exact year. I think it was the 1932 and 1938 when the standard configuration of the brake accelerator and clutch came about in cars. And you've got to think the castle was a early 1900s and it took over 30 years before they got to a standard interface. So it was really hard to drive a car. And then they made it standard, which meant it was really easy to move between cars. And then it was easier to instruct people. And I think it was the Dodge brothers who came up with it. Improving interfaces is something when you've done it and you've made it and you've made it appear easier and simpler for people that they actually don't realize that, that, that that's been done. So that's something I'm really fascinated about, and particularly around design innovation. I remember, remember having a conversation with Mario Puccini at, at PepsiCo, and I was talking about what happens if you do a step change, a massive leap with innovation. Because we don't have dimensions behind it, do designers lose the accolades associated with taking the company forward into the future faster because there's no capacity to dimension what that step change was from an economics perspective and the moment after it's been done, it's lost. And so I'm really interested about how do you measure the economic leverage, the economic advancement that design brings because if you can't measure it, it can't be valued. Julie, help me out. You've been through these projects, particularly around hospitality uh, venues. How do people value economic performance? Um, well, Mark, when I got your topic, I'm going to make a big twist here. Oh, oh good. I love, I love it. <laughs> so if we're going to talk about um, design and influence, this week was a great week because the iPhone 13 came out. And I think that the iPhone 13 is really great. I'm probably going to go get one in a, as soon as I get out of quarantine. Um, but it represents an old way of thinking about our economy. And you've mentioned the word growth a few times. And, you know, I've had this discussion before that I don't think growth is sustainable. So we need to look for new metrics to evaluate how we succeed. And if you look at the iPhone, of all things, which is very innovative in terms of its use, its customer interface, how happy it makes us as an object and all the things that it does for us, it makes us feel like we're really smart and can do them ourselves. It still is coming out of a linear economy where they took some raw materials, they made something, they give it to us. And when we're finished, we just discard it. Now imagine if Apple revolutionized their entire approach to design and said, I'm going to loan you the iPhone 13, 
for a year for two. And when you're finished, you bring it back to me and I'll give you an iPhone 14. Mm -hmm. so they're now responsible for taking all the pieces and parts that they took out of the ground that they bought in the first place, all those materials, and basically recycling them into the next generation of phones. Yep. So we're no longer just um, assuming that we've got a never ending uh, supply of parts and pieces and minerals and uh, materials from which to make iPhones ad nauseum in the future. And I think that's where we as designers and where our owners and everyone that we work with can really start to look at our economy in a completely, the economy of design in a completely different fashion. And, um, you know, we all, we've been through, I've been through, Rick's been through a few of these and other people around the table that are a certain age, but we've been through a lot of <clears throat> different phases in terms of our building. And we've always said, oh, it's going to be too expensive to incorporate handicap requirements into our buildings. We're not going to do it. Oh, it's too expensive to incorporate all of the green uh, building principles and the lead principles into our building. We're not going to do it. Yet we do. We do it over and over again. And um, I think as an industry, designers can help lead our clients, lead the people who are spending the money to creating more of a circular economy and becoming more responsible for the actions that they take today and where they'll land tomorrow. Yeah, and, and and thank you for bringing there the aspects of the circular. Um, I, I can't take in as a given that when we've got the three principles for a better future being about the strong economy, the sustainable environment, social equity, that that, that was it. But awesome that we shone a spotlight on how does that how does that circular side work? That thing about it's too expensive, I find really interesting. It's like the the poorest player on a sports team is now dictating because I can't do the enhanced skill. It's it's too difficult, and you've got to go think of all of the other schmucks who can't do this skill, and that and they're the and that's the standard. Whereas in the sporting world, you say, well, if somebody's actually worked out how to hit the ball out of the park, or somebody's worked out how to run faster, or somebody's worked out how to do something better, well, there's the new standard. And so I find that interesting where um, lobbying and that sort of economic leverage generally means that we go for the lowest quality standard, not continually moving up the floor in there. John, give me a bit of insight from your perspective about how do you, how does design either impact economies or how do you demonstrate that it's impacted the economic performance? Oh, that's a great question. Well, one of the things I've always told to my clients when, when they're questioning whether or not design is viable to, to their process to what Julie was saying ooh it's too expensive to put you know, to spend on industrial designers ooh it's too expensive for this and that um, you know it, products are all through design inherently we increase the desirability of the product so you know the iPhone and as already been said, is a great example of that. You increase the desirability through uh, ease of use, through beautiful materials and finishes and, and products. And now suddenly you can get people to gladly fork over, what, what's the number for the iPhone 13 now? You know, $2,000 or $1,500 or something crazy yeah, like that. Yeah, but, but gladly do it, like rush to the doors to do it. Um, so you know, to me, it's it, you know we've gone over the last twenty years through a, a design renaissance where people have started to understand the value of it. Um, one of the things that I'm looking at right now that I'm I, I think there's a, a really fascinating tipping point right now for the design industry and the economy in general is uh, we're at a coin flip period of um, in, in our economic stability. The inflation of the dollar uh, and you have a technology right now that's percolating in the background in cryptocurrency that is built solely for nerds and people that are tech like tech savvy using horrible interfaces and you know the, the switch over to that technology is similar to that uh, that was happening in the turn of the century with uh, the dot-com bubble there, there's the same kind of opportunities there and if design gets involved there and makes it simpler for people to get into that that into the crypto world and makes it you know makes them feel like they can do it themselves we'll see a, a very swift and noticeable change in in the economy and how it's run and we switch to digital currencies as opposed to dollar-based currencies and you know there's a, a really fascinating 
opportunity for the design world to make an impact there. Yeah, I, and I look at I look at what happened in the period from two thousand seven to two thousand and fourteen, where a lot of the innovation that was happening around the digital economy was uh, was often been driven by just raw engineering. Mm -hmm. And then in 2013, 2014, there was uh, the raw engineering actually wound up having two problems. One was that the number of engineering experiments that they were doing that actually turned into released products was down to around about 10%. And so it was just inefficient. And the other one was that they actually released some versions of, and if you look back at the history, every, every company released a version of a new app that was mm. an embarrassment they had to roll back. Like it was so woefully bad. And, and there, is, <laughs> yeah. there is nothing about the digital development cycle. Technically, you can work out, yes, you can roll something back, but it, it's like putting a, a crowbar into a big machine and it just ruins everything. And, mm. and, and because that efficiency was so low and they were in an arms race of good quality released product was actually the metric, they got in, and I think Facebook was one of the first ones where they actually went in an acquihire of 110 designers to say, we're going to actually be design-led, not engineering-led. And what they went from was having 80% of their output from their engineers not shipping into having 80% shipping. So they now were going five times faster. Right. And when you're, in a, when you're in a release cycle race, the design was actually now helping them to release acceptable and actually delightful products to their customers faster than their, than their competitors. And that was a very interesting change that we saw. But it feels like there's a period where just raw engineering is very rational and people say a rational process is going to get us there and they miss that human moment. And it's almost like the, the rescue squad for that economic cycle of being in trouble winds up being a design rescue squad, which is, I think, what we saw in Times Square. It was a design rescue squad for the economics. It definitely was in the tech industry there. And that, that was what fueled me doing the design of the boardroom series because I kept on hearing this common ploy, which was, oh, when's design going to be in the boardroom? And I'm going, hang on, I keep running into people who are in the boardroom and they're in design. And I see the smartest and fastest growing companies in the world are driven by design. And so after I did the 50 episode podcast about design in the boardroom, I just came up with one very simple response to people who'd say, oh, I hope design gets in the boardroom. And I just have to wave my finger and say, no, it actually is in the boardroom. It's just not in the boardrooms that you're in or it's that you're not in the boardroom talking about design, but somebody else is. Like, there's so many organisations now have a design-led approach, which is in the boardroom. It is that many designers, they, their ego or their self-awareness is they're not the one in the boardroom talking about it, or they're dealing with companies that are yet to get design in the boardroom. Because if I look at the, at the Fortune 500 companies, I go look at, the, say, the top 10 on the Goldman Sachs um, economic performance, They've all got design at their core. And I think, Dan, you're right there. Like, it's not exactly the style design. It's actually about these system designs. It's about user interfaces. It's about leveraging those opportunities. Um, Ronnie, going to bring you into the conversation here. You have an organisation which is trying to work out how to go and design for something that doesn't exist, for a problem which kind of exists but has to be reframed. But Hyperloop Transport, it's not Hyperloop Transport design, it's Hyperloop Transport technologies. But those technologies only efficiently deliver when they've been well designed. Is that a fair summation? It is, and, and it's an entire ecosystem. So what we're looking at is not only the point-to-point -point of connecting to large centers with a Hyperloop, which if we take New York City and Boston, for example, it would be a 29 to 30 minute ride. If we can do that in 30 minutes, but then it takes someone an hour to get to their meeting when they get to the other end, we've failed, right? So we, we wanna look at the entire design of the ecosystem, soup to nuts. And the, there are a number of factors here. 
it's energy net positive, the main system. So Hyperloop is covered in solar. So we generate more power than we actually use and we can push that power to the centers that um, are, are at either end of the, of the system. Um, we're also taking a lot of trucks and cars off the road at the same time. So we're reducing traffic, reducing pollution as well as bringing people together much closer. So it's a time factor. And there are all these other aspects that go along with that. Mm. Um, so in, in terms of economics, yeah, I mean, it's like we, the impact of that is gonna be immense, right? But at the moment, it's not solving that problem. We have to work towards that. So we have to prove the technology, we have to build the systems, we have to install the systems, and then they will start to actually, will bear the fruit of that um, down the road. But I think, you know, to Julie's point before, we need to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. And we're reaching limits now where we're using more resources than the planet has. We're taking more from the planet than it can support. And it's things like Hyperloop that we just have to bite the bullet and have faith in the fact that we, we just radically need to leap ahead, as you said, Mark, like way ahead and go for a system that is going to be for the future. And it's not an incremental change. It's a big leap to another type of system altogether. Yeah. I mean, I've got a couple of other examples. I, um, yeah. About, about a decade ago, we redesigned a very large stationary company's website to Rick's point, um, just changed the user interface. So the user experience, we didn't add new features and functions, but we looked really hard at how people actually interact with e-commerce. And in one year, we increased their sales by over a billion dollars, right? So they were selling $167 a second off the website by the time we were done with it. And while that felt like a big achievement in terms of economics, the traditional way of measuring economics, because it was measured in dollars, right? We'd probably just filled a landfill with packaging and, and stuff that maybe people didn't actually need, right? So how can we take design and start working on projects that do actually look at the circular economy to Julie's point? And this morning we just had a meeting and I can't talk about the product that we're gonna be developing or helping develop, but the entire concept now is that we're going to design this product so that it's modular. We will own the product. We will not sell it to the user. So the user will actually, in quote unquote, sort of like lease the product and we will design it so that we can, right, take all these components and recycle them completely. And we're not like, you know, if you look at a modern car, they will mold steel, they'll mold aluminum around components. You cannot repair items, right? They're actually built so that you just can't take something apart and tinker with it and replace an object we're doing a ground up uh, redesign or rethinking about that whole process so that every component, we will know what its useful life is and that we manufactured that and the materials that that came from and we source the materials responsibly and that the components that can be reused will be reused. And that means we're gonna design things that will last longer from the ground up. We don't want them to fall apart and you know, be redundant. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, I had a conversation a while ago with a designer from Rolls-Royce Bentley. And he said to me that Bentleys are the most efficient cars being made today. And I said, that's crazy. And he said, it's because you don't throw them away. The amount of energy that goes into the fuel of a car is nothing compared to the amount of energy that goes into making the car. So if you can get a car that lasts 30 years, and that's probably conservative for a Bentley, um, you're doing a pretty good job ecologically. Yeah, and and so so I think there's uh, these three levers that I, and, and it took me quite a while to work out what might be three primary levers. So there's an economic lever, and we all know how to go talk about that. There's an environment lever, which is uh, now being referred to from the circular economy. And there's this social equity lever, which is a really important one. 
because we might have worked out how to do the circular economy on the iPhone, and we might have worked out how to do the circular economy on on the Amazon box that's been delivered to people, and that's you know completely reusable, reusable and recyclable, and all of, all of that. But we're still actually making people poor because they're now that uh, they you know they can't actually get a decent living while they're being the delivery driver for for Amazon or for whoever else. We need to make sure all of those levers are working, don't we? And that we that we get we've got the lever for equity, we've got the lever for um, the environment, and the lever for the economy. All three of those levers have to be used in balance. And so, Dan, that point that point about the Bentley being an efficient car because of its longevity with the invested energy that's inside it. And also, I don't think um, Bentleys have driven that far. I think if you went through 30 years, they probably have very low miles on, on their clock um, because they're different than somebody who has a Ford Ranger who drives at a million miles in 10 years. Rick, you, you oh, sorry, Dan, Fred. Yeah. Well, I, I just wanted to add to that, that one, example uh, one 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 book uh, that, that that talked about specific examples of those three levers coming together and it's not recent i mean jane jacobs economy of cities is over 50 years old i think it was written in 1969 in in chapter eight she uh, talks about um, the chapter heading is some patterns of future development and she compares what was being planned for her neighborhood in west village a project that uh, was going to cost $35 million in, um, in contemporary dollars back in the mid 60s that would have uh, destroyed 700 dwelling units, uh, uh, but created uh, a net increase of 300 dwelling units at the same time, uh, uh, losing 156 businesses that employed uh, 4,500 people. And she compared that to the alternative plan developed by the community she was involved with uh, that had a net cost of only uh, 8.7 million, which was what a, a fourth of the cost was going to create more units and not displace any uh, uh, businesses at all. And we know uh, some of the physical issues tended to that, you know, famous story. You know, the buildings were low rise, eyes on the street. There were all sorts of social benefits. But when you talk about social equity, uh, uh, and you can do that in economic terms, you know, loss of jobs, displacement of businesses, displacement of residents who've lived their whole lives or a good part of it in the same neighborhood. Um, that, that is measurable. And it, it, it does relate, you know, to uh, uh, environmental, uh, you know, and, and, and other issues. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, we're seeing nearly enough reuse of building materials. Materials. We talk about the circular economy in, in design and construction of, of housing, and it's being done very, very well in parts of Western Europe. We saw housing in, in Copenhagen that is uh, almost 100% recycled materials, not happening yet in New York. You know, and, and what are the economic incentives, not just the regulatory requirements that might incentivize that? And, and there's a really interesting, you know, the, the building materials, there's a lot more technology understanding about building materials and their reuse coming around. I was reading an article a week ago and it was talking about concrete. When you go and look at what, so when you manufacture concrete, that you lose a lot, a lot of um, atmosphere or you create a lot of atmospheric pollution. But what happens over the life cycle of the concrete is that it sequests the very gases that it released it's sequestered again by turning into a, a calcite. When you go crash concrete down and you leave it in a pile as crushed concrete in part of the recycling, it sequests all of the carbon that it released, minus the you know, transactional cost of the uh, first law of thermodynamics. And I went, wow. So taking rubble like concrete, crushing it properly, and then putting it in a pile. And if you crush it to the smaller grade, you actually get more sequestering of the carbon that it released. So the impact of using concrete in the building cycle is now being refactored. So it's more, more than half as bad as it used to be. So it's like, okay, so we need to refactor that there. And reusing a whole building and actually repurposing it, awesome. If you do need to go bring it down, make sure that you're recycling the concrete so it's actually uh, doing the maximum that it can do. 
But these combination of how do you go think about the environment and how do you go think about the economics and, Rick, as you brought up through Joan Jacobs, thanks, is also the social equity aspect there. If we can't actually think of those three primary leaders in every decision that we're making, we're not really accelerating to a better future. We're actually just taking a quick win on one of them and then leaving the problems that it's created to, on those other, other primary factors that are in there. So is it something that the way that we talk about design, because I'm, I'm wondering about the measuring of design. Uh, should we be thinking of design as just being a strategy, not a practice? Because I, I think most of what we've been talking about is if you say, I've got a really good strategy that will get us to the future faster and more economically, people will say, oh, I'm interested in that. When you say it's, it's design, it's like, oh, yeah, that makes things look pretty. But if you actually just refer to it in a conversation, I've got a strategy that actually gets us to the future faster in a more economical way and gives us a larger return on investment and gives us our other values of the social equity and the environment. I think you're going to get a lot more hearing than if you actually have to go put the design word in the middle. Help me out, panel. Am I absolutely crazy or is there something in not mentioning the D word that helps us out? I think it totally depends on what your listener values. Yep. And if they value design, which many listeners do, then they're going to not want to miss that piece of what's going on. You know, thinking of um, uh, Stephen Ross and the whole West Side development there related to development on the West Side of New York City. Boy, that man, he values design names, you know, architects coming in. So that was a huge part of how he chose to spend his money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I also remember when Related went and finally realized that sustainability was an important part of their corporate, had to become an important part of their corporate philosophy. And I remember the time that it wasn't. And I remember the day that that switched over and it was like the old days of not caring about sustainability never existed. They just changed their reality into something new because society was driving that they'd become responsible and really care about that. So I think that's, it's, it's where the listeners are tuned. You can educate people you know you could go in and say we're not going to talk about design we're going to talk about creating a better solution moving to the future faster in a very economic way and then introduce them to the idea that design is going to be part of that solution and help them learn to love the word design um, and vice versa people that are in love with designers get past just that stark tech glory thing and uh, realize the people that are working with them and for them are really bringing a great deal more to the table than just a design image so I think it depends on the listener. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. And um, Dan, I'll go across to you. I know your love of baseball. It runs almost as deep as your, your love of music. But if we were trying to go do fan development for baseball, you don't have to speak to the people who are currently fans of baseball. What you've got to do is speak to the people who are yet to be fans of baseball. And you're going to have to actually work out how to bring them in and say, look how great baseball is. And it's a different conversation, isn't it? So, so there's part of the people who are trying to go build that understanding and that sensitivity around design. It's a different conversation than just speaking to designers. How would you do it if it was baseball? How would you get a non-baseball person in to baseball? Well, the easiest way to do that is to find the people who are just on the edge, right? Just on the verge of liking or not liking baseball, or understanding or not understanding baseball. So I guess it's the um, path of least resistance, uh, at least start with that group because it's gonna be the easiest to convert. So the baseball curious. But, but would you put them in a room, have a nice big party with all the great baseball fans and so some of their enthusiasm could rub off on those 50-50 people? I mean, you. Don't ignore the ones that are already sold. I think they're your greatest salesmen to the people who aren't sold yet. Oh yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, um, going to a baseball game is infectious, even if uh, you're not a baseball fan. I mean, you just feel it in the air because you're surrounded by so many baseball fans that you realize, well, there must be something going on that I don't understand. So yeah, I think, um, the people who are already converted may be also very strong salespeople. Yeah. So, and seeing we're two weeks out from the start of um, October in uh, in New York, 
Um, October, Rick, is October for architectural and design lovers or people who are architectural and design curious or both? Uh, I, I'm not sure what the distinction is. Uh, October, uh, which we initiated at, at, at AI New York and the Center for Architecture when I was there, was uh, a, a management tool to uh, avoid conflicts. October was the month where the most design-related events took place in New York. Uh, why? Uh, holidays in September and November. Uh, decent weather, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, so every organization, every entity would cram their programs into October, often on the same night. Uh, so October started as a way of, uh, of trying to reconcile the calendar and then do cross-promotion. Uh, uh, it, it developed into a major uh, outreach effort to get people who were architectural enthusiasts, architectural consumers, uh, engaged with people who were doing production of design. Um, uh, um, and, and it's been successful beyond all expectations. Uh, uh, but I, I would like to come back, you know, uh, uh, to, to your baseball uh, uh, motif and metaphor, uh, because, you know, uh, uh, the, the wisest New Yorker that ever was, although he lived in New Jersey, uh, was, of course, Yogi Berra. And uh, he didn't talk about design an awful lot, but I think he answered your question in the way that Dan phrased it is, 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 is exactly what Yogi said more pithily. You can observe a lot just by watching. Love it. I, 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 I think, I, you know, think uh, when you find an architectural enthusiast, you know, uh, watching how the sausage is made, <laughs> they, they, they learn an awful lot. And Open House New York has done that, you know, picking up on London and other cities. Uh, uh, I, I think uh, there's a greater awareness of how the method of production of design impacts daily life. Mm. And I suppose that's going to get people, um, it's going to feed absolutely for the people who can enjoy the um, the beauty and the and the elegance of the built uh, of the built space but there's a different conversation about the economic performance and the environmental aspect which is probably a more strategic conversation um, that's packaged up to go actually speak to those people's needs I'm thinking about the how do you make sure that people who are yet to adopt Jane Jacobs' principles that they understand that they're available and there's a smarter way to do this? How do you make sure people who don't understand the circular economy that you're packaging up for them? Because I, when I see those sorts of conversations, they seem to be going into practitioners. They don't seem to be radiating outside of the tent. They seem to be often conversations which are quite pleasing and reaffirming inside the tent. Ronnie, your head was nodding there. Is, is that a reasonable summary that there's a lot of the conversation is actually amongst the same people inside the tent? Are we radiating out? Um, I think we're radiating out in, in so far as when we, when we touch people. And I think, you know, to, if you take the related project and Hudson Yards as an example, that when you go there and you experience that, and, and you are surrounded by the aesthetic and the, and the design of it, that I think that's when it really does have the, the public impact. Little Island just opened up on the Hudson River and unbelievably successful I, in my book. I think it's just fabulous. And the aesthetic of it and the fact that it's been so meticulously thought and considered from every aspect, from a social aspect, from the accessibility aspect, from a um, design and aesthetic aspect. I, you can't help but go there and just start to marvel and see people thinking and talking about shape and talking about structure and looking at the structure and how it is held up over the river. I think there's so many aspects there that I think when something at that scale is really designed and thought through, you can't go there and not, not take that into consideration. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if this, I had some other thoughts around concrete and I was thinking about materials and the use of material, materials and the ubiquity of materials in architecture and terroir and thinking about if we as designers think about what we can source locally and use locally and not think in this global level, 
we end up creating environments and structures that are unique to that particular environment and that place. And I, I just got back from Barcelona and Madrid and um, Leipzig and Berlin, and it's been really interesting looking at transportation structures and how unique they are to the individual place because they use materials that come from that place or they use colors or they use designers who are thinking in a very sort of nationalistic or local manner. And I praise them for that. And I think that that's very interesting. Um, and I'm looking at these like timber uh, skyscrapers now that you can actually build very large structures from wood. So, you know, where are the places in the world where you could grow the wood locally and build large structures and not have to use concrete that's not sourced economically or well and steel that's very costly in terms of its environmental impact to produce and start using these things to create a, a local terroir feeling because i don't want to go everywhere and find the same architecture and the same materials and the sameness i want to have that local and julie we've talked a lot about that in the projects that you do and work on right and uh, this week, uh, the spotlight that we have that's coming out is Jay Vergola, a fantastic uh, New York um, uh, architect. And Jay took a leaf out of the Jane Jacobs and subsequent, you know, design uh, investigations that happened following um, Jane Jacobs. And he had a project in Brooklyn, which could have been a high-rise tower, but instead he kind of went the landscaper idea where it was actually the longitudinal medium rise development that then wound up having all of the snaking alleyways between it that then gave a much nicer community feel. You know, there, there are different ways for us to go and resolve a, a situation and it doesn't have to always be a high rise tower to go get, get the result there. John, you're leaning forward, help us, help us with your contribution. I'm leaning forward because I'm fascinated by where this is going, but I don't really have a clue how to, how to contribute at the moment. Um, yeah, it's... So, so I, want to, I want to pause you there for a sec. That is possibly the most wonderful, honest thing to be able to say, I'm leaning forward because like, wow, this is, this, is, this is quite exciting. But we don't have to always have an immediate answer. I know Dan's spoken before about the idea, I can give you an immediate answer or I could give you a better answer in a period of time. You know, it's, it's, there's something about the Google thing, which is we're meant to have an immediate answer or a panel show where everybody's meant to have some, I've got to have some hard hitting comments. So I, I love the honesty of your point there. So I, I'm not sure how I feel about this idea that I'm turning into the guy that every every month says I don't know, and then get everyone goes yay. <laughs> but but if it, if it works, I'll, I can keep keep it up. So, but the I don't know is actually. Do you know more? after you've participated, even though in the moment you don't know, you, you know, what I'm trying to get to is when we put you on the spot in this moment, you may not know. Yeah. But then does that resolve over the coming months that you go, actually, I've now got a better understanding of what I participated in? Well, so for me, like I'm trying to verbalize what, what's going on in my head is like this conversation in particular is one that, creates more questions for me than it than I can even begin to start to parse out answers to them. Um, you know, there's the idea of the circular economy that, you know, all of that stuff, you know, I, I think, like I'm excited about that. I hear about the, you know, there, there's all the, the talk about the uh, timber building materials here in Vancouver. Uh, I've, I've had a lot of exposure to that. So that kind of stuff excites me. But then, but where the questions really start to come to mind, like where that stuff ends and my questions really begin are is, is this idea, and I shook my head earlier at this idea is are we, is our message getting outside of the tent? I think that was the metaphor that you used. Um, and and I'm, I'm not sure if it is or if it even can right now when we have, you know, I don't know what the number is right now, but 7 billion people on the planet and half of them are still living in poverty or whatever, again, what, whatever those numbers are. But you, as 
we we start we're, we're trying to figure out how to level playing fields but as soon as we level playing fields we're going to be running into the problem where we, we we're increasing the amount of consumption that's going to be required for you know whether it's food or you know iphones or car whatever it's going to be so we're in this really it's a conundrum for me right now where as soon as we start finding answers on you know, a, a an economic level that you were the the people in this this discussion are used to. Once others start coming closer to us, that's going to start just creating even more problems. So that's that's where my mind starts going with all of this. Is is you know, we're solving known problems to us, but we're also opening up a lot more problems to solve down the road. So. And thanks for the input because you brought up a, a, a conundrum, a quandary, a curi being curious and questions. Awesome things that designers should be involved with. If we were engineers, we'd actually have books of references that had calculations and ratios and all that. And no engineer gets upset that they've got too many calculations. No designer should be upset for having a, a conundrum, a quandary, uh, being curious and, and the questions. It's actually, it's the quality and the efficiency that we can have referenced by the principles that we have. So Julie, you brought in a really good principle about the idea of the circular economy and should iPhone 13 or should iPhone 14 actually be a loaned product, you know, a, a phone as a service rather than phone as a possession. And that the responsibility is then that it actually gets um, taken through its whole life cycle. Dan Famosi, you're famous for saying it's actually about the questions. It's not necessarily about the answers. So is John absolutely in the right territory, which is John's got more questions than he's got answers at the moment, but that's the world of a designer, isn't it? And then you've got to work out which are the most important questions, which one gets you the most alignment with the values and the principles that you're trying to achieve for the, in the most efficient process. Yeah. yeah, you know, I give a lot of workshops and uh, seminars, etc. And <clears throat> I like doing it over the course of two days, because things incubate overnight. So even if it's a one day workshop, I would ideally plan it for half a day, the first day, and half a day, the second day. Now, what's interesting about COVID and the lack of travel is I can plan the second half of that workshop several days later or a week later uh, because things happen overnight. You know, things need to incubate. Questions come up as you go to sleep or as you eat or as you're walking around. So, yeah, I think the whole idea of instant answers is just, um, I think everyone's a little too comfortable or too used to feeling the need to have answers instantly. Julie, I know this isn't an instant answer for you because you put your hand up even before Dan started speaking. So there's obviously something that's percolated up for you. Help us. If you're not asking questions, you're doing things exactly the same way you've done them before. Yeah. You've got to ask questions to change your perspective. You've got to ask questions in order to broaden, to take under consideration stuff that's, that you've never thought of before. I think if you don't start with a, a big, infinite list of questions and ideas and open yourself up, you've lost your design opportunity. Yeah. Rick, you've also thrown your hand up there. Well, yeah, I, I'd like to suggest, Mark, that you're an honorary New Yorker uh, for all <laughs> sorts of reasons. Uh, and uh, in the Museum of the City of New York, uh, which I recommend to uh, everyone listening if uh, they haven't been, uh, there's a staircase and, you know, uh, next to the elevator, there's a stair prompt that suggests that people take the stair. And in the, in the stairway, uh, there are quotations. And I'd like to read one from John Adams, 1774. New Yorkers talk very loud, very fast, and altogether, if they ask you a question, before you can utter three words of your answer, they will break out upon you again and talk away. <laughs> So it is refreshing to not get an answer to an unanswerable question. You know, will the circular economy come full circle? Uh, good question. You know, uh, uh, I don't know. You know, uh, but I'll give you an answer, and if it's not immediate, uh, I've lost my job. So, so I think then what we're what we're being focusing on here 
and, and thank you for that interjection there. Well, what we started off was talking about how does design innovation help in a strong economy? And the provocation that I made was that it was actually, we need to be able to go and demonstrate it. It then evolved into, well, is it more that we should be talking about the strategies for a project and their strategies which are driven by design, which might be more efficient than the strategies driven by pure economics or the strategies which are driven by engineering. So I think that that's a point there. We then came down into the idea that, are we talking inside the tent or are we talking outside the tent? Julie threw in and the levers about, well, we've got to think about the environment, the circular economy side. That was then augmented with, the, well, should we also be thinking about the social equity aspect of it along? So those things come in. And there was this big dive that we went and did into how well resolved it can be when you're a design-led organisation. We wound up down in Hudson Yards in there. John then took us on the down a path about questions, the curious, the quandary, the conundrums that are in there. And then we got stuck in this, well, I shouldn't say stuck, but we arrived at this place, which was now we're talking about the quality of the questions. And I think if I go through and say, well, the quality of engineering is actually about the equations. The quality of design is the quality of the questions and working out the strategy that achieves the principles that the organization has and delivers on those principles in the most efficient and effective way. And organizations generally don't have one principle, I'll have a stack of them. And if you can deliver on as many of those principles as possible, then you've, you've had a fantastic design. The problem is I think a lot of designers go work for organizations who have shitty principles and so then they wind up working on shitty projects. So there comes a point where you actually say, well, maybe I should be actually working with people whose principles align with me and that actually they're doing things or work out to subvert the people who've got poor principles or not well-developed and evolve them, help show them how the circular economy can actually give them economic leverage, show them, which is what happened with Related. They all of a sudden went from having no interest in the environment to understanding the benefits of being interested in the environment by being more market-centric. You know, so... There is the role of the designer's advocate, not just pleasing themselves. We're going to go through a wrap up here over the next couple of minutes. Help me out, panel. Am I crazy or have we actually got a little bit more clarity as a honorary New Yorker? Wow, I, that, that's amazing. I've now stumped all of the New Yorkers. There. I got no uh, answer out of here. <laughs> Come on. I've, I've, yeah. Well, I've got a topic unto I've got a topic unto itself, which is underlying this is that the school system is based on models based on uh, you know that date back to the 1800s when people worked in factories and we didn't want anyone to ask ask questions or at least they didn't want people to ask questions. It was more about obeying. So it's really a topic unto itself. Is why are we so bad at questions? But it does have its um, does have its history and I think we are all programmed or at least many school systems program us to be uh, shy to ask questions. Yeah. Mm. Makes us look dumb. Well, while we were um, hearing your answer, Rick Bell had a question by putting his hand up there. Let's go and well, see if he's got I, my answer. I really, I really like the direction that Julia took us in talking about the circular economy and, and um, you know, many, many people have spoken more eloquently than I can about it and and you know one of them pete seeger said if it can't be reduced reused repaired rebuilt refurbished resold recycled or composted then it should be uh restricted uh, uh be redesigned or removed from production uh lots of alliteration there uh uh, uh keith richards responded to that by saying uh, you can't always get what you want but you can try sometimes you know to get what you need and i think that is the best definition of uh you know how, how do we change the equation for what designers can do you know across the board not 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 just in industrial design architecture product design but across the board and everything we do you know how could we give greater credibility to what's come before and how it prepares us for the future yeah, I think that's good there. Who wants to go next? Come on, a New York minute or New York second, put your hand up. So I, I would put that 
for me, I think all designers should be thinking through the lens of meeting the needs of all people through the means of the planet and really taking that into consideration. And Julie, the circular economy and that is, is just primary. And I think if we, if we do use that as a lens and the focus and putting the person in the center and thinking about their needs with the boundary and limits of what the planet can actually support, I think we start to move in the right direction. So John, I'm gonna to go to you and then I'll get Julie to help wrap us up and take us home here. Are there questions being a good enough conundrum for you today that are going to percolate up over a period of time as Dan does with his workshops? Yeah, <laughs> well, absolutely. I, like I, I've said several times that I, I always walk away from these conversations feeling uh, slightly further ahead than I was before we started them. So um, where I'm landing right now is you know, the, the questions really that are, are coming to mind are, is how do we design our world? You know, I, I, I want to stray away from products, but design our world to just be more, be more inclusive and 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 outside of the bubble that we're in, because it, we just have this um, um, mass amount of people that are are starting to that will hopefully start joining. In rising out of poverty and rising out of, of different situations that um, will allow them to live more free and you know, it's going to bring problems but I hope we can design you know, our world to in include that and not have to, to run into the limitations of you know that Ronnie mentioned you know materials and all of that stuff it, it's 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 some it, this is big stuff and it's it's hard to I'm stumbling again because like, I don't know where to go with it, but there's just, there's so much swirling that starts to swirl around this stuff. Yeah. And, and, I, and I love the honesty about the stumbling. Um, to me, that's how I learned to walk by stumbling. I didn't actually just uh, say I'm going to walk and I, I ran. So stumbling is a really mm -hmm. good learning place to be. Julie, help us take us home here. It's, it's all an awareness. Just all these conversations that we have, Mark, are so terrific because I always think about the world differently than I, I did an hour ago before we started. And I think as long as we keep the conversation going and we're all geared for action and we take some action, even no matter how small, I think we can make this all happen. Yeah. Because if, if you look at the big picture, it's overwhelming. But every big yeah. thing that we do is made up of a series of steps that get us there. And as long as we keep moving forward, eventually we'll make it. Yeah. That's a great point because this does make me start thinking about all those the big problems and I, I get overwhelmed. And, you know, that's where the stumbling comes from. But yeah. so I, I, I'm hoping over the next little while that you know the smaller pieces are what falls out. I'm um, and just to bring us home here from my perspective, I'm I'm fascinated with the difference between musicians and the cycles that they, they go through and designers that the cycle. So designers don't seem to have these phases, they just seem to be in this continuing, I'm in the studio, but, it, but they're not, you know. There's a pitch phase for a designer. You've got to pitch for the job. Then you go in to actually ask the questions and work out how to resolve it and the investigation part that's in there. But then you wind up in a performance mode, which is saying, here's the, here's the resolution, here's the answer, here's the pro proposition that we've got. And at some point, you'll get to go back and you'll get to evolve that. But you've, you've got those three primary stages. You're pitching for it, which is saying, I think I can and I'll be the right candidate. There's the, what the hell are we going to be doing? What's the challenge? And then you wind up with, now we have to go sell that that proposition is the right proposition there. So often I see designers forget that and they seem to be continually in the questioning mode rather than actually realizing sometimes we have a responsibility to tell people, at this point in time, our best available knowledge is we should be doing this. And that's a really important, I think that's how we communicate outside the tent is that we remind people that there are some points of resolution, which is what Jane Jacobs did in her book. It was a point of resolution. Here's, here's my proposition, here's my platform. And maybe that's something as the Design Exec Club we have to start to do, which is give some waypoints that actually turn around and give some documentation so people can digest what we're talking about. 
stunned silence again. What do you think, everyone? Do you think that's a use? Is that a useful investigation there that maybe we need to actually work out how do we digest it down and give it to people? Because the conversation's great, I have to agree, but we took an hour to do this. I'm not sure an executive's got the time to go do that. Yeah, I think if we could, Mark, and I think also there's, there's probably some very specific examples that we could um, bring to the table that would demonstrate this in a very uh, easy, easy comparable way, such as Airbnb versus the traditional ho hotel industry. A lot of the same principles are, are being exhibited there. You know, Airbnb is a much more circular economy for one thing than the traditional hotel industry. And I think we could start to see how all of those things are, are coming to play by being more specific about examples. Um, so I think yeah, that, that gives me some homework for 2022. How do we come up with some form of intelligence report that comes out from what we're doing here with these with these town halls? This is great for practitioners, subject matter experts, and it's a longitudinal benefit to us. But people need to digest it down so that we can say, if you digest this, use this as a guide of where the status quo is up to, and you should be ahead of that. I think that's useful. Everybody, thank you so much for yeah. your time. It's been wonderful. As always, I'm humbled to go and have a chance to walk around these topics with your minds. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.